0: You guys can turn to the book of Philippians. That's where we'll be this semester. We'll be looking at the book of Philippians starting today. Now, as some of you know, but many of you are new, so you don't know this, I can't actually see much out of my right eye. So when I look at you all, I'm seeing out of my left eye because about nine years ago, a tiny little microscopic hole opened up in the back of my right eye and let fluid rush in and it pushed my retina out and distorted my vision so badly that I actually I saw double which is really hard when you actually see double of everything I could not read I could not drive I could not walk unless I put a patch over my eyes so for a time I was actually known as the pirate preacher if you're here long enough you remember these are actual drawings children made during services at Grace Southwood nine years ago and I really love the one on the left because I don't know where the hat came from. I never wore that. I did wear the tie and, you know, how a Bible and stuff like that. Fortunately today, I don't have to wear the patch anymore. My brain just totally tunes out my right eye. But over these nine years, as I've gotten accustomed to this thing going on in my eyesight, what's really surprised me is that something so incredibly small can have such an impact on my perception of the world. And that's still true today. If I close my my good eye, my left eye, instantly half of you disappeared and the other half of you don't look human anymore. It just, it has a massive effect on how I perceive the world, even though it's a microscopic little thing. And that's actually a really good paradigm for the book of Philippians. It's a perfect metaphor for this book because it's really tiny. I don't know if you, you look at it in your Bible. Mine's three pages. It's not long at all. It's only four chapters. This is a really short book. It's shorter than most magazine articles. And yet it can have a profound impact on how you see your world, yourself, and your God. That's what it did in, in my life. I actually studied the book of Philippians in depth for the first time at the end of college. I was a senior, and we took this Bible study journey for a semester through Philippians, and it changed everything for me. It, it changed my values and my priorities and my behavior, and it really set me on the course of my life as I left Texas A&M. And it can do the same for you. It can have an impact on your life that is completely disproportionate to its small size. If you will let it, this book can transform you for the better, just like it did me. And so I'm I'm really grateful to get to walk you through this book this semester as we dig into it. I want to start today with a little bit of background so that you know something about who wrote it and, and who he wrote it to. Because that's always important to have in the back of your mind as you study a book of the Bible. And so we happen to know a good bit about Philippians. We know it was written by Paul. And actually in this book, he tells us a lot about himself. He includes his story In Philippians, it's kind of biographical, if you will. Actually, turn to chapter 3. Paul tells us in chapter 3 about his life before he met Jesus. So look with me at chapter 3, verse 5. Paul says, circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. What Paul's telling us is before meeting Jesus, he was a very self-righteous man. And by self-righteous, what we mean is that Paul... Believed that because of his genetics, he was full blood Jewish, and because of his behavior, he had obeyed the Mosaic Law, he believed God owed him something. He believed that he had earned God's favor through his good deeds. In fact, he was so self-righteous for Judaism that Paul became an enemy of Jesus. He hunted down Jesus's people. Paul was a persecutor of the early church. He imprisoned and enslaved those who followed Jesus. But then you may know The story. Paul was traveling to the city of Damascus to hunt down more Christians, and Jesus met him on the way and revealed himself in such glory that it blinded Paul, and Jesus revealed the truth to Paul, and Paul repented. He turned away of his self-righteousness, and he trusted in Jesus as his savior, and, and he went through a complete 180. He became apostle to the Gentiles. He wrote much of the New Testament. And by the time we get to this book being written, he now is actually in prison. You see that in chapter 1. Look at chapter 1 real quick. Here's where Paul is. Verse 12, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel so that my imprisonment for the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole praetorian guard and to everyone else. Irony of ironies. The guy who was putting Christians in jail now is in jail because he's a Christian. He's in Rome. We can tell that from the reference here. So he is in prison in Rome. This is about 61 to 62 AD. He writes this letter to the church in Philippi. And so what do we know about the church in Philippi? It was the first church planted in the continent of Europe. Paul was called to take the gospel to Europe. He plants his church in Philippi. The first convert was a woman named Lydia. And women played a significant role in the history of this church. This was a really significant church because it was incredibly faithful. Actually, we know that for about 10 years, between planting this church and writing this letter, the church in Philippi had been one one of Paul's greatest successes. They were great partners to Paul. They partnered with him in his ministry. They gave to him financially so he could take the gospel all over the world. They were incredibly involved in what he was doing to such an extent that it's interesting. Paul never refers to himself as an apostle in this book. He does not pull out his apostle card for the philippians because he doesn't need to They're such great friends with him that he presents himself as a peer in this book as a friend a brother to them because they have been remarkably faithful so we have a great church in a very significant city the the city of philippi possessed something really important in the ancient world it was called the italic rite it was very rare Hardly any cities had this. It meant that if you were born in the city of Philippi, you automatically received Roman citizenship. It was as if you were born in the city of Rome. And citizenship in Rome was really significant. If you were a city, a citizen of Rome, um, you could not be tortured or killed without a fair trial. You could own and sell property and you never had to pay taxes. So it's a really good deal. Now, the first couple of those you might look at and say, well, didn't everyone have that? Like, couldn't they not kill you unless you had a fair trial? Couldn't you own land? Actually, no. In the ancient world, very, very few people had rights. An incredibly small percentage of the human race had these kind of rights. And so it made the Philippians incredibly special. In fact, if if you were born and raised in Philippi, probably the single most valuable thing you owned was your Roman citizenship. It set you apart from the entire world. It was what made you famous. And so it is not a surprise that in the book of Philippians, Paul talks a lot about the theme of citizenship. That's really the the big idea of this book. The book is designed to teach us what does it mean to be a good citizen, but not of Rome. That's not where Paul wants to focus. Not on their Roman citizenship, but something far more important. Look at chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 20 and... If you want, in your Bible, this is a good verse to circle. I'll give you a few of those really significant verses. Paul says in verse 20 of chapter 3, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. His point is that if you have trusted in Jesus as your Savior, then then you are a citizen of heaven. And, And that trumps all other citizenship claims. You may be a citizen of some nation of earth, of the United States, of China, of some place on earth that's nothing compared to your citizenship in heaven that's that's everything and so the book of Philippians is designed to help us understand what does it mean to be a citizen of heaven and and every verse in this book is designed to help you understand either the privileges you receive as a citizen of heaven or the priorities that are expected of you as a citizen of heaven whole book is designed To teach you how to live as a good citizen of heaven. Now why did Paul need to write that to such a good and solid church? Well, it was because the church in Philippi was beginning to struggle. They were were facing some difficult situations. Three in particular. First, disunity caused by pride and selfishness was tearing apart their church. Second, false teachers had come into their church for the purpose of leading them away from the the simplicity of the gospel. They were trying to distort their gospel and pile guilt upon them. And third, persecution. The, The Gentile rulers were starting to come after this Christian church. Well, those same three challenges confront almost every church, including our own. Even here at Grace Bible Church, pride and selfishness are always a threat. They threaten to tear us apart at any time. False teaching is still prevalent in our world, and, and persecution is growing. And, and for most of us, we've not been imprisoned for our faith like, like Paul was, but we have suffered in some way for our allegiance to Jesus, and if the world continues on its current course, that's going to grow. So we, just like they, need to know what does it mean to be a citizen of heaven instead of a citizen of earth? What are the, the privileges and the, and the priorities that come with my citizenship in heaven? Paul is going to talk to us about that. Every single verse of the book is designed to help you to live as a good citizen of heaven in a fallen world. And that includes the very first verses in the book, which is where we're going to be today. So if you want to look at chapter 1, we're just going to look at the first two verses. Really, really short. Just first two verses. It says, Paul and Timothy... Bond servants of Jesus Christ to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi including the overseers and deacons grace to you and peace from God our father and the lord Jesus Christ Now I will be honest when I read the beginning of a letter like this I tend to just kind of skip over it as fluff like he's just saying hello that's it so let's let's get on to the meat of the letter but that's not true of, of biblical letters actually there's a ton of theology in these two verses and that's what I want to unpack for you this morning. As you look at verses 1 and 2. They're, they're really not just an introduction to the letter. They're about our new identity. That's what these verses are about. Paul wants you to understand. That when you became a citizen of heaven. By trusting in Jesus. You received a new legal identity. In the eyes of God. Who you are. Your rights. Your privileges. Your priorities. Your obligations. It all changed in that instant. You received a new legal identity. It would be very similar. Imagine The person who immigrates to the United States and goes through the entire citizenship process, which is quite lengthy, quite involved. There will come a day when that person will actually pledge their allegiance to the United States. They will take a vow of citizenship to the United States. And that's a very solemn thing. That's a a very significant thing legally, because at that moment they become a citizen of the United States, and that changes all of their legal identity. They actually they get all new legal paperwork, right? They get a passport now, as their primary They get a voter registration card. They get all the, the identification documents that come with being a citizen of the United States. Because when you become a citizen of a new place, you receive a new legal identity. And Paul wants you to understand that's exactly what happened to you. When you trusted in Jesus, you became a citizen of heaven. And that changed your legal identity. And he wants to walk you through. What is your new identity as a citizen of heaven? He gives it to you in three words. We're going to look at three key words that tell you who you are now as a citizen of heaven. So the first word, first part of of being a citizen of heaven is you are now a saint in Christ Jesus. We are saints in Christ Jesus. That word saint, it's actually the word hagios in Greek. It means those set apart or consecrated by God. It's actually the same word as holy. So if, if you're reading your Bible and you see saint, holy, holiness, sanctified, all the same words in Greek, all the same word. So to be a saint means that God has set you apart from the world. That's the root idea of holiness. Sometimes we think of holiness as about morality. Well, it can relate to morality. But ultimately, to be holy or to be a saint means you have been set apart So when it refers to a group of people like us, we are saints, it means that God has set us apart from the rest of the world. That's true whether we act saintly or not. If you are a saint, you should act in a holy way. But even if you don't, it doesn't change the fact that you're a saint because you're you're a saint not because you earned it or behave in a certain way, but because God chose you to be a saint. Being a saint is because God chose you. He called you out of the rest of the world to belong to him. The book of Romans talks about that chapter one, verse seven to all who are beloved of God in Rome called as saints, graced you in peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You were called to be a saint. You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. You didn't work for it. God called you out of the race of humanity to belong to him As, as a saint in Christ And as saints in Christ, what do we get? What are the privileges of being a saint? Well, grace and peace. That's what Romans 1.7 said. That's what Philippians 1.2 says. Saints are those at the core who receive grace and peace from God. And we receive that grace and peace from God in Christ Jesus. Did you know that's a really significant prepositional phrase? We receive grace and peace in Christ Jesus. Jesus, we didn't earn it, we don't deserve it, because we we definitely, we don't deserve that from God. What do we deserve from God? The Bible is really clear. We've all done bad things that that we know are wrong, things that hurt other people, things that the Bible calls sin. The Bible tells us that, that that sin, it deserves judgment from God. But instead of giving us that, God gives us grace and peace instead. And he gives us that grace and peace in his Son, in Jesus, it comes to us through Jesus, not through our efforts, not through our works, but through Jesus and our connection to him. When you think about receiving grace and peace from God in Christ Jesus, here's the best illustration I know. When I was in high school, I got to go to Disney World. I'd never been. So this was a big deal. We never had the money for that kind of thing. I got to go to Disney World because my brother won an essay contest. And my brother's younger than me, so it sung a little bit that he won this contest. But he wrote this essay, and I guess it was really good because, I mean, I didn't read it. It was my brother's. But people read it, and they said, this is so good. You win the grand prize. Your whole family gets to go to Disney World for a week for free. So I got to go to Disney World in Matt Jennings. In my brother. It was because I was connected to him. I didn't work for it. I didn't do anything. I didn't even read the thing. And yet I got to go because I was in relationship to him. So it is with your salvation. You do not deserve grace or peace. You don't earn an iota of it. You get grace and peace in Christ because he earned them for you. Think about it. It was Jesus who lived a perfect life. It was Jesus who died a sacrificial death. It was Jesus who rose from the dead, conquering sin and death. He is the only one who has ever earned grace and peace from God. And yet, he takes that grace and peace he earned and he shares it with all of us. He shares it with everyone who comes to him in faith. Look at chapter 3 verse 9. A little bit later in the book, chapter 3, verse 9. Another really good verse if you want to circle it. Paul says his goal to be found in him, that is in Jesus, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. We don't earn righteousness from God. We don't earn right standing with him. It comes to us for free as a gift the moment we place our faith In Jesus and and people often ask how do I exactly I do I do that what does that look like I think the easiest way to put it I shared this last week if you were here last week the easiest way to put it all you have to do to receive righteousness through Jesus is say thank you turn to God and say God I I am a sinner. I do not deserve grace and peace from you. But I thank you that your son Jesus died for my sins and rose from the dead so I could have grace and peace for free. The moment you say thank you to God for his gift of Jesus, you become a citizen of heaven. It really is as simple as that. Righteousness is a free gift. Grace, peace, eternal life, a free gift. Citizens of heaven have received all of those free gifts, not because they deserved them, but because Jesus earned it for us. In Christ, we have become saints. And so that's the first part of our new identity as citizens of heaven that Paul wants us to understand. We are saints in Christ Jesus. We've been set apart from the world. We've been delivered from the penalty and tyranny of sin. We have received grace and peace now and for eternity simply by saying thank you to Jesus. Okay, second part of our identity. We are slaves of Christ Jesus. Paul uses the word in, in chapter 1, verse 1, doulos in Greek. Unfortunately, my translation here in English, I don't like the translation. It says, Paul and Timothy bond servants of Christ Jesus. And the problem is, when I hear the word bond servant, I tend to think of like Downton Abbey. Like the idea of like a servant, like a butler, and he's kind of serving in the house. Well, the deal is, like, that kind of servant still earns a wage. That kind of servant can still quit, go do something else. Like, that's an employee. That's not what this word means. This word means slave. It means a person who is owned by another person. So we're not employees of Jesus. We're slaves of Jesus. We owe him obedience in every area of life. We are not equals of Jesus. We literally belong to Jesus. Every aspect of our lives belongs to Jesus. I don't think it can be said better than this by Abraham Kuyper. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. That's what it means to be a slave of Jesus. Every square inch of your life belongs to Him. Now the problem is, we hear this word slave, and it sounds really bad to us. We do not like that word. Well, we don't like it for good reason. Because when humans do this whole slave thing, it goes really bad. Humans abuse other humans. Slavery to another human being is slavery out of fear and compulsion and pain. It's it's horrible, but God doesn't want us to think of it that way with Jesus. God wants us to understand that slavery to Jesus is a completely different thing. Paul would actually say, notice, this is the first thing he says about himself. Not apostle, not writer of the New Testament, slave of Jesus. To Paul, this is his greatest honor. Why? Why is it a good thing, an honor, to be a slave of Jesus? There's two reasons, two important reasons reasons why it's actually a good, honorable, wonderful thing to be a slave of Jesus. The first is found in chapter 2. Let's turn to chapter 2. Look at verse 5. So if you're circling verses 5 through 8, which we're about to read, is your next one to circle. Actually, the most famous part of the book of Philippians. Does have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Did you notice the word in verse seven? Same word we just saw in chapter one. Bondservant. Jesus, he chose to be a slave. And so let's think, let's, let's picture what's happening. Jesus is the eternal son of God. He has always existed in heaven in glory and power, almighty and splendor. At some point in time, 2,000 years ago, he chose to take on human flesh. But here's the deal, he's God. He's the creator. He could have taken on any human flesh he wanted to. So he could have been king. He could have been celebrity. He could have been emperor. What did he choose instead? Slave. He became a slave. Why? For us. He became a slave to us. And then what did he do? End of the past. He died a slave's death. When it talks about dying on a cross, that's a horrible thing. That was a a punishment that was so unbelievably painful that the Roman Empire reserved it for two groups of people murderers and slaves. What's ironic here? Philippians, they can't be crucified because they're Roman citizens. They could never be crucified, but Jesus was crucified for them. Jesus was crucified for us. So what Paul wants us to understand, why is it an honorable thing to submit yourself as a slave to Jesus? Because Jesus was your slave first. He chose to come to earth as a slave serving the human race. To die for us, to die a slave's death, the worst, worst death Of all, He did all of that for us. And so when we think about being a slave to Jesus, we're choosing to be a slave not out of obligation, not out of guilt, not out of fear, but out of gratitude. I want to submit my life to a master like that because he chose first to be a slave for me and to die a slave's death for me so that I could be freed from the tyranny of sin. That's the first reason why it's such an honor to call yourself a slave of Jesus because he was a slave first and he did it for us. Second reason why it's an honor to call ourselves a slave of Jesus. It comes to us from Romans 6, 16. Do you not know That when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. What Paul is saying is that as a human being, you are either a slave of sin or you are a slave of obedience, meaning a slave of Jesus. You're obeying him. Notice there is no other third option. What Paul wants us to understand is that as human beings, freedom is not possible for us. I'm not talking about political freedom. I'm not talking about economic freedom. I'm talking about spiritual freedom. It is not within your DNA as a human creature to be spiritually free. That is not possible for you. You are a slave of whichever of these two masters you choose to follow. That's the only option for the entire human race. Every human being is either A slave of sin or a slave of Jesus? There is no other option available to the human race. So, what kind of master is Jesus? Well, here's what he says to us in Matthew 11. Take my yoke upon you. Now, let's pause. That's not comfortable language. That's slave language. My yoke. Jesus is saying, be my slave. I'm your master. Be my slave. But you will learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find Rest for your souls. So why do you want the yoke of Jesus on your neck? Because he's the kind of master who will always lead you towards rest. He is gentle. He is humble, meaning he always seeks your good. He will do everything in your life to lead you towards rest for your souls. Will you get that kind of treatment from sin? No. For those of you who are old enough, like me, 42 years old now, you know, you know, sin will never give you rest. Sin always results in pain. Maybe not immediately, it might feel real pleasurable for a long time. But it will always lead to pain that is written into the laws of this universe. It is as inescapable as the law of gravity. If you sin, you will suffer. Sin is a master that seeks your destruction. Jesus is a master that seeks your rest. You don't get to be free. All you get to do is choose which master you will serve. And so that's reason number two, why it's an honor to call ourselves slaves of Jesus, because it's infinitely better than the alternative. So, as you think about your life and Paul's call to be a slave of Jesus. Here we are at the beginning of the fall semester, another school year in front of us. This is a perfect moment to rededicate ourselves as slaves of Jesus. This is a moment today. I want you to do this today before you go to sleep. I want you to think about your life, every part of it, not just your churchy life, not just the public part of your life, but all of your life, 24-7, even your private life. Can you accurately call yourself a slave of Jesus? Have you been living that way? Have you been obeying him in every part of your life, even the parts of your life no one else sees? If not, if there is some part of your life where you've been allowing sin to fester for some reason, maybe you feel like you deserve it, maybe you feel like it's no big deal, maybe you feel like you can't turn from it, this is the day to recommit yourself to Jesus. Right at the beginning of the semester, this is the day to turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, you are my better master. I want to give you every square inch of my life. I lay it all at your feet. You deserve it all because you became a slave on my behalf. Now I submit my life to you. I want you to take this day to submit your entire life, every square inch of it, to Jesus. To commit to walk with him in obedience. And if there's some part of your life that you're going to surrender to Jesus today, then before the sun goes down, I would like you to tell someone else. It doesn't have to be everyone. Just find somebody who you can tell, hey, here's an area of my life that has not been submitted to Jesus. I'm giving it to him today. Because that's the second part of your identity as a... As a citizen of heaven, you are a slave of Jesus. And that's an incredible honor. And so give him every square inch of your life. Third and final part of our new identity as citizens of heaven, we are servant leaders for Christ. You may have noticed Paul mentions a couple different leadership groups in in this introduction that we read he mentions overseers those are the people who watch over the the doctrine and purity of the church we call them elders so it would be the the elders of the church and he mentions deacons those who serve those are people who who watch over the physical needs of the church that would include our deacons it would also include many of our staff and ministry leaders here at grace bible church What Paul is doing in mentioning these two groups of leaders is he's reminding us that as citizens of heaven, we have the privilege to become servant leaders in the kingdom of God. Now, that doesn't mean all of us are going to be elders or deacons. That's not what it's about. It means every single one of us, without exception in this room, is called and equipped to become a servant leader in the family of God in some form or fashion. That might be teaching and raising up children, whether they're your own children or someone else's children. That may be leading a Bible study. That may be mentoring a person who just came to faith and you're teaching them how to pray, how to read the Bible. That's servant leadership. That, that might mean leading in a charity here in town or a ministry on campus. You're, you're giving your gifts of administration and leadership there. Whatever it is, every single one of us is called to be a servant leader in the kingdom of God. And and that's a privilege. It's an incredible privilege. And here's why. When when you think about being a servant leader in the kingdom of God, it's important to recognize God doesn't need you to do that. God doesn't need any of us for anything. He doesn't need elders, doesn't need deacons, doesn't need pastors, doesn't need you. Because he's God. He can do everything better than us. He can lead your family better than you can. He can lead at your work better than you can. He can lead in the church better than you can. He can lead in the charities of this town better than we can. He can do all of it better than us. So why is it a privilege? Well, because what God is doing is he's saying, here's something that I could do better, but I want to invite you into it. I want to invite you to share in your father's work. And that's an incredibly privileged thing to do. It reminds me when I was growing up, when I was a little kid, like real little, maybe half this height. My dad began to invite me to repair cars with him. And I was not good at it because I was like four. I did not know anything. I was actually so small that I could sit in the engine bay of the car. So I would crawl up and sit around the engine and we'd work on it together and everything he would do would take longer if I was there. But he loved to have me work with him. He loved to invite me to share in his work. It it was actually so fun, so life-changing that now I do that with my kids. So Here's my son helping me torque a bolt to speck, and I'll be honest, it took him 10 times longer than it would have taken me, and yet I was smiling the entire time. Because it is a joy for me to invite my children into my work. That is exactly how God thinks about you. It thrills the heart of God to invite his children into his work. Not because he needs you. He'd do it better if he did it himself but because he loves to, to have you join him. And so as you think about your life as a citizen of heaven, what is the mission of your life now while you're still on earth? It's to join your father in his work. That's what your life is about. You have these few short years, maybe 40, 50, 60, 70, 80. It's a short time here on earth to join your father in his work. That is the most satisfying, rewarding thing you will ever do. And so I want you to, to think about your life. Look at your life. Is there some place where you have stepped up as a servant leader in the kingdom of God? Have you joined his work of helping other people find and follow Jesus? What are you doing to join your father in his work? If you look at your life and say, you know, I'm not really yet. I, I don't think I've stepped up as a servant leader yet. I'm not really yet helping other people find and follow Jesus because I, I don't know what opportunities there are. Come talk to us. Come talk to an elder, a deacon, a staff member, any of us. Actually, the first and foremost thing that we are here to do is help you join in your father's work. That's the most important thing any staff member of the church will ever do. We want to help you find your place alongside your father in his work of helping people find and follow Jesus. So please come talk to us. Most of you are ready to do that. You may not feel ready, but you actually are ready. To join in your father's work will help you to do that. So as we think about our lives as citizens of heaven, we've received a new identity. The moment we trusted in Jesus, we became saints in Christ because Jesus poured out his life for us. We became slaves of Jesus so that we could pour out our lives for other people, helping people find and follow Jesus. And we can become servant leaders for Jesus, joining in his father's work here on earth to help others come to know his son. So I'm going to close us in prayer and I'm going to ask God to to convict you and challenge you to live out of this identity this week. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you that you have made us to be citizens of heaven. We praise you and thank you that through faith in Jesus we get to spend eternity with you in the perfection of heaven. We thank you that that comes to us not through our works or our effort or our merit but in Christ. We praise you that he died for us, that he rose for us, that he lived for us, so that we can be with you forever, so that we can be freed of the tyranny of sin. We pray for any person here this morning who has not yet said thank you for that gift, who still is trying to earn righteousness, who's still trying to work for it, we pray. Please help them to understand that you offer it to them for free. We pray, Heavenly Father, that for all of us who have said thank you for that free gift, we pray that you would help us now to live as slaves of Jesus. Not out of guilt or fear or obligation, but out of, out of gratitude. Out of belief that Jesus is the better master. I pray that you would help us to give him every square inch of our lives. We pray that if there is some portion of our lives that we have held back for ourselves, that we've held back for sin, we pray that you would convict us and challenge us to surrender that today to Jesus. And we pray for every one of us here, Lord, that you would help us to step forward as servant leaders, that we would join in your work, Father of helping people find and follow Jesus. We pray that we would live lives that glorify you and that exalt your son, Jesus, because he is worthy. We thank you for him. We praise him. May we live for him this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, God bless you guys. We'll see you next week.